If you would turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I know Brother Ed has an early flight tomorrow, so uh, I should be able to keep this under an hour because, of course, we believe in the message of the hour. So. But, uh, anyway, uh, Reve- oh, do I see Brother Joel Parazok back there? God bless you, sir. He's responsible in great deal for me being here right now. All right. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verses 12 to 14. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And his head and his hairs were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire." And his feet like unto fine brass, as they burned in a furnace, and his voice was the sound of many waters. Shall bow our heads for a word of prayer. Precious Lord, we thank you, Father, for this wonderful opportunity to gather together at your feet, to sing your praises, to worship you. Lord, I ask that you open all of our hearts, Lord Jesus, to receive what you have for us this evening, Lord. That you would set aside the man, that your spirit would have the preeminence that we receive the food that you have for us to strengthen us to carry out the work that you would have us do. We commit ourselves into your hands and ask your blessing. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So tonight's message, um, it's about what I call menorah patterns. And uh, what I mean by the word menorah, it's the Hebrew word for the golden candlestick. Okay. 
and which we've just read in Revelation. So instead of saying seven golden candlesticks, I'm just going to go with menorah because it just rolls off the tongue a lot easier. Okay. And there's two things that sort of spurred this message. Um, the first is uh, something that Brother Branham said. Uh, there's 16 times in the message where he said that the Bible is an Eastern book. And the authors were Eastern thinkers. And he said, our Western education, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it, it can be an impediment. Okay? Uh, and so we need to, so we, he, he sort of issued as a challenge, you know, to try and view the, 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 the Bible as an Eastern book, kind of change the way of thinking. So I kind of set out, I wanted to find out exactly how that works. The other thing that uh, spurred this is... Um, the, um, it's a unique challenge where, uh, in our church. Um, I'm, obviously, I'm English, but my home church is French. And so when I preach, I preach in English, but I have a French interpreter. So when I prepare, first of all, I have to actually prepare my notes word for word, verbatim, so that the, the, the interpreter can actually follow along much easier. Okay. But we've discovered something because of this, in that in the French, they don't have a Bible that is exactly comparable to King James. So I find, I write, read King James, and between you and I, okay, we read King James, and that's what it says. But in French, depending what Bible they're using, it may not say the same thing. And I'm trying to make a point, I'm stressing on one thing, and they're like, well, we're not really seeing it here. And... In those four Bibles, one might be good for certain verses, another one will be good for certain verses, but none of them, not one of them, is comparable to King James. So when I prepare my notes, I go back to the, the most commonly used one, and if it agrees with King James, okay, we just move forward. But if it doesn't, then I have to out, sit down and figure out, okay, why are they not lining up? So, of course, the first thing is, well, what, did Brother Branham say anything about that Thing, situation in particular. If he did, now I know the correct interpretation, we're all good, okay? But sometimes he didn't touch directly on certain things. So what do I do now? So I have to go back to the original languages, you know, and explain, okay, I know it says this in English, I know it says this in, in, in French, but this is what the Greek or the Hebrew actually says. And in doing that, I've discovered certain things in the linguistics that... Uh, have been really helpful that I want to kind of share with you this evening. So one of the things I've discovered is, in the New Testament, if we come across something we don't quite understand, you can go to a concordance and you look up the Greek word, okay? But I found out you can't stop there because of what Brother Branham said. It's an Eastern book, and Greek is a Western Gentile language. The authors were Hebrew thinkers writing in Greek. So they were using the best Greek word to go along with the Hebrew word that was in their heads. So, okay, what do you do now? You take the Greek word and you find its Hebrew equivalent in the Old Testament. Okay, now you have a better grasp of what's going on. But then you can't stop there. There's actually, the, the, the ancient Jewish sages discovered something that I find really works well. They call it the, the, the law of the first occurrence. When you find a word and you want to know its definition, find the first time it's used in the Bible. And if there's a root word, find the first time that root word is used in the Bible. 
because all the types of definitions that come afterwards will always be based on the context of that very first time. So I thought, that was really cool. That, so that opens up a lot of different things. So just some examples of what Brother Branham meant by Eastern thinking, okay? So for us in our Western education, we're taught to look at time as linear. Starts here, ends there, and a straight line of events. But that's not how Eastern th thought is. In Eastern thought, time is cyclical, okay? Like, you know, re re repeating patterns, okay? It still goes forward, but it's in cycles. And this is what, uh, what Solomon was talking about in Ecclesiastes, where he said, the things that are going on now, they happened before, they'll happen again, okay? But once you understand that's the mindset, the entire Bible is written that way. So you find there's reoccurring occurrences, okay? You'll notice in Scripture there's these, these uh, stories where a man meets a woman at a well, and she's usually a bride-to-be, and then you see it again, and then you see it again, and then you see it again. The Bible is challenging us, okay? Someone once said that history repeats itself because nobody was listening the first time. <laughs> so what you do is you take all of those occurrences and you line them up, and you say, okay, What's common to all of them? What's different to all of them? And you find that all those women represent the same woman. And all those men represent the same man. Okay? All right? Now, uh, another thing that uh, I found was really interesting is uh, uh, in Hebrew, uh, because of the translation, okay, this is, um, I mean, the King James Bible is the best that we've got for English. Okay, but it's not the best. In Hebrew, the way it's written is Hebrew words have generally at least two meanings. Okay, sometimes that's a noun, uh, it can be a noun or it can be a verb, or it has both a physical application or a spiritual application. Okay, King David mentions this in one of the Psalms. He said, Lord, you spoke one thing, but two things have I heard. Okay, and it turns out that in Hebrew, when you read it in its original language, what the translators did is they took the most obvious context, and that's what they put in the Bible. But to a Hebrew thinker, they're hearing two things. They're reading two things at the same time. Okay? And because it's Scripture, and there's no accidents with God, both are actually correct. It's just that one is obvious, one you might have to go a little bit deeper. Okay, so uh, just a couple of simple explanations before I get into the lesson. So uh, we'll take one word, um, shaked. It's the Hebrew word for an almond nut. Okay, but it also means to be watchful. So if I'm talking to an Israeli and I say the word shaked, he's going to like, well, okay, what one are you talking about? Are you talking about the nut or are you talking about being watchful? Well, in the Bible, the answer is yes. <laughs> okay. Another thing that's interesting about Hebrew linguistics I found is um, every letter means something. And their position in the word actually declares the word, okay? So for example, the, the Hebrew word davar, it means word, okay? Jesus was the word, he is the davar, okay? And a davar can be the spoken word, it can be the written word, okay? But if you take the letter mem, and put it in front, it becomes another word. It becomes the word midbar, which means wilderness. Okay? 
So the root word of wilderness is the word devar, word. So when you say wilderness, okay, knowing that devar is the root word, okay, the word is in the wilderness. Well, that concept is reflected throughout Scripture. Where did God give the children of Israel the word? He didn't give it to them in Egypt, and he didn't wait till they were in the promised land. He gave it in the wilderness. John the Baptist was in the wilderness. Jesus had to go to the wilderness before his ministry. King David was in the wilderness before he was king. We see Elijah going to the wilderness. Why are these guys all in the wilderness? Because that's where the word is. And I believe that's why Brother Branham gravitated to the wilderness himself. Okay? The word is in the wilderness. And for you and I, we're on a wilderness journey. Brother Branham talks about us being in the third exodus. He says you're coming out of denomination and into the millennium. And the, the third exodus types the first exodus. Okay? It's, a, it's an exodus in the wilderness. And we all need to have a wilderness experience because that's where the word is. Okay? So just that, that, that one Hebrew word, wilderness, opens up all of these concepts. And you see it reflected throughout the whole Bible. Okay? So now, into the lesson. <laughs> so we just read Revelations chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. And we saw, we see in, that, in those verses, the seven golden candlesticks, which is one lampstand with seven candles. Okay? And John, being a Hebrew thinker, would have understood what this represented. Now, to us, we look at this and we can see the seven church ages, and that's true, okay? But it also represented certain spiritual principles that the ancient Hebrews knew about, okay? When he looked at that, uh, uh, that seven golden candlestick, it represented a, a pattern, a spiritual pattern that God put in the Scriptures and in the message, it's a pattern that's like a, a, like a signature on a painting or like a fingerprint. It's a way sort of that God put there to prevent counterfeiting. And it's the kind of thing that the ancient uh, Jewish sages would look for when they were deciding, well, what is going to go into the Bible and what doesn't go into the Bible? Because there's a lot of ancient writings that try to make it into the Bible. And some they accepted, some they refused. And one of the things they're looking for is patterns like this. Okay. And there's many patterns in, in Scripture. We already talked about the repeating patterns. Uh, another common one is um, it's called a ladder pattern, you can call it, where you've got the two sides of a ladder and rungs connecting them. Okay, Proverbs is written that way. So, for example, you have one proverb that says, do not uh, answer a fool according to his folly. Another verse says, always answer a fool according to his folly. So what's the thought that's connecting them? If you're dealing with a fool, it's a lost cause. <laughs> All right? So that's a pattern. So when we look at the candlestick, here's the, here's the pattern. Um, you see seven candles. Well, what is the purpose of the candles? It's to illuminate. Okay? The Word is a light. Right? Jesus is the Word. He is the light. Okay, so this is what its purpose is, is to illuminate, okay? When you look at a menorah, it has a left and a right side, okay? And they're mirror opposites of each other, like a left and a right shoe, okay? 
Now, in Hebrew thinking, or actually Eastern thinking, it's not just uh, Hebrew thinking, but in Eastern thought, uh, yeah, uh, there you go. <laughs> All right, in Eastern thought, the left hand always refers to things physical, and the right hand always refers to things spiritual. Okay? So, looking at that, you've got a left side and you've got a right side, and they're connected in the middle, and there's balance. Okay? And you, when, you look, and when you look in the center, when we were reading Revelation, what was in the center? Christ. Okay? He's the connector between the two, the, the physical and the spiritual, and he's the place where the balance is. Okay? So with that thought in mind, okay, because this is a principle, it's, uh, it ties in with um, what Brother Branham talks about in marriage and divorce. He talked about uh, the law of contrasts. That's what this is dealing with. Okay? So, uh, with this pattern, uh, sorry, I just want to make sure I get it right here. So you've got, yeah, the left hand refers to the, uh, the physical, and the right hand refers to the spiritual. So, when Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land, he gave them a speech. He said, do not turn to the left or to the right. Okay? They would have understood, do not go into physical extremes, don't go off into spiritual extremes. And Brother Branham said the same thing. You go on either side of the extremes, you go into the ditch, stay in the middle. That's what this is conveying, okay? All right, so why is this pattern so important? Well, first of all, you were built in mirror of this, of this pattern. God gave you a body so that you can interact and communicate and contact the physical world. You were given a spirit so that you can interact and communicate in the spiritual. Okay? But, brother, but you also have a soul. And it's Brother Brown called that the control tower. And it's the, the very thing that decides what kind of, what you project out into either or what you can receive from either. Okay? So you're built in a way that these concepts with this pattern will naturally be attracted to you, okay? Right. So, so it's, yeah, it, it, even subconsciously, it's, it's just there. We have physical food, we have spiritual food, and you need both, okay? And they have to be balanced, okay? So, so just some examples before we actually get into the, the lesson lesson. So, like I said, you, you kind of have that pattern. The Bible itself was compiled according to that same pattern. You have the Old Testament, which deals primarily with physical Israel. You have the New Testament dealing primarily with spiritual Israel. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, an Eastern language. The New Testament is written in Greek, a Gentile Western language. Hebrew is written from right to left. Greek is written from left to right. So it starts from the center and goes out. Okay. So it's built with the same pattern. But where do you find Jesus? in the Gospels, in between the two. And the thing about the Gospels is, for the most part, they're not written in Greek or Hebrew. They're written in Aramaic, which is the language of, of Galilee. Well, Aramaic is not a Hebrew language. It's a Syrian language. Aram is the, the, the Hebrew word for Syria. Okay? So it's a Gentile language, but the script that they used for writing was Hebrew. So it's a fusion. It's a place where the Jew and the Gentile meet linguistically. 
And that was the language that Jesus was speaking with the apostles. Okay. So you see this pattern. It's there. And then when you zoom in even more, go to the crucifixion. Jesus is on the cross. He's got two thieves, one on the left, one on the right. One of them is carnally minded. The other is spiritually minded. And Christ is the center. So that's, this is how the pattern works. Right? Now, in the message, um, it, it crops up in the message quite a bit. Keep your eyes looking. For, uh, uh, sorry, keep your eyes open for it. So one example would be um, when he talks about uh, Billy Graham and Oral Roberts. Okay, the two angels to Sodom. Look at Oral, uh, Oral Roberts. He's a favorite of the Pentecostal side of things. Okay, loves signs, wonders, miracles, that type, and universities. Billy Graham. He's sort of on the Baptist side of things. They love the Word of God, but the days of miracles are past. Okay? But they also love the universities. Okay? Billy Graham, his name, six letters with a ham. Roberts, seven letters, but no ham. So you bring it together. You've got Brother Branham, who was not into universities. Seven letters in his name with the ham has the word and the signs and wonders in proper balance. There's your pattern, okay? This pattern also comes up in the events of Brother Branham's birth and death, okay? He was born on the first day of Passover, okay? Check your Jewish calendar, check the dates, you'll find this. He was born on the first day of Passover. His burial was on the seventh day of Passover, okay? The accident to put him into a coma was on the first day of the Feast of Dedication. His death was on the seventh day of the Feast of Dedication. The day he was born, it was a full moon. The day he died, it was a new moon. He was born at sunrise. He died at sunset. And the pattern is there. Okay? Why is that pattern there? It's a stamp of approval. <laughs> okay? It's the anti-counterfeit. It's, it's God's way of saying, this, I did this. Amen? All right. And we're talking about the seven golden candlesticks, the church age book. Okay? Reread the chapter of Thyatira. Brother Branham even uses the same hand symbolism. On the one hand, the woman is like this. On the other hand, she's like this. Back and forth, back and forth, the law of contrast. It's all there. Okay. And Thyatira is the center stock and the balances. Okay. All right. Now for the lesson. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we're going to take two stories, uh, one from the New Testament, one from the Old Testament. And they're connected together by this pattern. So I'm going to read the scriptures of both stories. And as I'm reading them, just think about what is the same and what is opposite. And what I mean by opposite, I don't mean different. I mean opposite. Okay? So the first, uh, I'm calling this one the menorah of two kingdoms. And we find this in Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 16. We're going to read to verse 28. It says, but when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself sent forth and laid hold upon John 
and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him, and would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man, and holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come, that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in, and danced, and pleased Herod, and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he swore unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto half of, the king, of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry for his oath's sake, and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, in the prison, and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel, and the damsel gave it to her mother. So now that's the right side of the menorah. Now we're going to read the left side. Actually, uh, no, that's more left. This is more right. Sorry. <laughs> Even though it's in the Old Testament. Esther chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to read from verses 1 to 4. Now it came to pass on the third day that Esther put on her royal apparel and stood in the inner court of the king's house, over against the king's house. And the king sat upon his royal throne in the royal house, over against the gate of the house. And it was so when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther drew near and touched the top of the scepter. Then said the king unto her, What wilt thou, Queen Esther? And what is thy request? It shall be given to thee to half of the kingdom. And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto a banquet that I have prepared for him. So, have you noticed the similarities between these two stories? So, in this, in this menorah of the two kingdoms, it's connected together by a phrase that is uttered by both King Ahasuerus of Persia in the book of Esther and King Herod in the Gospel of Mark. The phrase is, What is thy request? It shall be given thee to half of the kingdom. This phrase was said to Esther in chapter 5, verse 3, again in verse 6. And again in chapter 7, verse 2. So it took the king three times to get Esther to say what she wanted. The other time is in Mark 6, 23, when King Herod spoke to Herodias' daughter. These are the only two occasions in the Bible that this phrase is ever used. So that should just get our attention. There's a connection here between these two. Okay. So one in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. And as we look closely, we can see a pattern emerging. So first, let's kind of recap the stories. With Esther, we see that the, that the villain Haman has tricked the king into making a decree that would exterminate the Jews. Queen Esther then wanted to make a petition to save the people, a petition which led the king to speak the phrase to her, what is thy request? And it shall be given to thee to half the kingdom. 
Once the petition was made, a way was found that resulted in the salvation of the Jews and the execution of Haman. Okay? With Herod, we see where John the Baptist was preaching a message that the queen in particular hated because it exposed her as an adulteress because she had previously been married to Herod's brother. Later on, when the queen's daughter danced for Herod and it pleased him, he spoke the same phrase. What is thy request? It shall be given to thee to have the kingdom. The queen then used the occasion to use her daughter to petition the king to execute John the Baptist. So now that we've recapped the stories, let's look at what's the same about both and what's opposite. So first we have the phrase, what is thy request? It shall be given to thee to have the kingdom. That's the same for both. In Esther it says, when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court, that she obtained favor in his sight. In Mark, it says, when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced, it pleased Herod. In other words, when each of the two kings saw these two women, they liked what they saw. Okay? So that's something they have in common. With Esther, who was queen, she had a clear enemy, Haman. Herodias, who was the presumed queen, because she's not called the queen in the Bible, you just assume so because she's married to the king. Okay? And she had a perceived enemy, which was John the Baptist. So Esther, a real queen, a definite enemy. Herodias, a presumed queen and a perceived enemy. King Ahasuerus did not perceive any threat from Haman until Esther exposed him. Herod did not perceive any threat from John the Baptist. But both kings were compelled to act because of their oath. Esther was a virgin who married the king. Herodias was an adulteress who married the king. So there's our mirror opposites. Okay. Esther made her petition at the time of a feast. Herodias' petition came to Herod through the time of a feast. Esther made the petition herself. Herodias made the petition through her daughter, and that's an important point that we're going to come back to. King Ahasuerus was bound by his word. King Herod was bound by his word. As a result, Haman was executed, and John the Baptist was executed. Freedom for the Jews followed Haman's death. Fortunately, following John the Baptist's death was more persecutions. He was the first martyr of the New Testament. Esther was motivated by the salvation of others, even putting her own life at risk. Herodias was motivated by a selfish, carnal hatred of John's preaching, who was the Elijah of his age. Keep that in mind, all right? Haman, Bible says, was an Agagite, which is a descendant of Amalek, who was a descendant of Esau. Herod was an Edomite, who was a descendant of Esau. Now, I want to pause here. For just going to go off on a little rabbi trail here. When you see Jacob and Esau or their descendants, and there's a conflict, okay, it always represents a personal conflict that each of us have to deal with, okay? okay? Because Rebecca types the bride, and we're all identifying with that, right? Well, when she was pregnant, she comes to the point where she says, there's, there's something going on inside of me. There's some sort of a conflict going on. So she goes to the Lord and says, What's, what is this? And the Lord tells her, he says, you've got two nations inside of you. And they're duking it out. Okay? 
But, and, and, but after they're born, he says, they'll grow up, there'll be two nations, but the older will serve the younger. Okay? Now, after they're born, we come to, re, we, we come to realize that Esau is absolutely carnal. He is motivated by physical lusts, physical desires, absolutely physical. He's the, he's the left side of the menorah, you could say. Okay? Jacob, on the other hand, he was spiritually minded to the point where he had a face-to-face encounter with God. He wrestled with God. He confessed his sins. He had a name change. Okay? Remember the story uh, of the, the, uh, the Brother Branham told of the, the Indian chief? He says, man, he says, you know, since I'm born again, I've got like these two dogs inside of me and they're fighting all the time. That's Jacob and Esau, okay? But the scripture says, okay, Esau was born first. In us, our carnal nature is what comes out first, okay? When we're kids, okay, everything is carnal, okay? I want this, I want that, me, 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 okay? As we get older and mature, the Jacob starts to rise up and the conflict goes, okay? But if you're a believer, you go through a new birth. You have your face-to-face encounter with God. You go through a name change, and now it's Israel. And now the Spirit has the upper hand so that now the younger, sorry, the older will serve the younger. And and as long as we're in this flesh, that conflict is going to be there, okay? As As long as this is here, the conflict is there, okay? But this is why we see it perpetually through Scriptures as well. So all of this stuff can be brought home personally, to us individually. So remember that. Anytime you see Esau and Jacob or their descendants together, and there's a, it's you and me. Okay. All right. So Haman, we see that he manipulated the word of, king, of the king to get his way. Herodias manipulated the word of the king to get her way. Okay. So now that we've seen both sides, let's bring them together and apply it to our day and find the lesson, find where Christ is in this. Okay. So today, we have two women, okay? This is, these are stories of two women. Brother Branham says, you see a woman in the Bible, it's a church, okay? So we see the bride of Christ, who is his queen. On the other side, you have the whore of Babylon, who is not called Satan's queen, but she could say she's the presumed queen, okay? Like Herodias, the adulteress, who had a daughter who was duped into being her partner in crime, as it were today, the Catholic Church has her adulterous daughters as well, who have also been duped into partners in crime to do the bidding of the mother. Okay? The bride of Christ is motivated by the salvation of others, even to the risking of her own life. The whore and her daughters have a deep hatred of the message and our Elijah messenger. Okay? Just like John the Baptist was hated. I mean, look at the, the hatred that Brother Branham faced in his day. You know, preaching a serpent seed and a stand on women preachers and so forth. 400 plus ministers gathered in Chicago to, to, to come down on him for that. Okay? And then, when he died, they were already spreading rumors saying that, oh, that God must have killed him for this, that, or the other thing. The hatred was there. And it comes up again today. You know, we, we had, not too long ago, there's that exodus out of the message because of the believe the sign and things like that, and you listen to what they say, the hatred is identical to Herodias, okay? It's the same, all right? Now, 
It says that both of these petitions happen at a feast time or time of celebration. So where do we see this? Well, for the bride, she's in the middle of a wedding celebration. Okay? All right? Right now, for us, we're in the time of the wedding vows. We're in the time of the consummation. We're looking forward to going to the reception. Okay? So what about the denominations of the church, the other side? What kind of a celebration are they going to? Well, where is the headquarters of the whore? It's Rome. What kind of parties was Rome famous for in the days of the Caesars? Okay. Turn to Revelation chapter 18, verse 3. <clears throat> it says, For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich the abundance of her delicacies. This is a description of a Roman orgy. That's her kind of party. That's what adulteresses do. So both women are involved in some sort of a celebration. When you look at Queen Esther, she was in submission to the king. But Haman and Herodias both tried to manipulate the word of the king in order to get their way. Look at the remarkable difference today between the message and the denominations. In the message, we take God at his word. He said it, I believe it, and therefore I must conform to it. Amen. Okay? But the denominations, on the other hand, they will bend over backwards into multiple yoga poses to try and manipulate and twist the word to make it agree with whatever is of personal importance to them. Yeah. Trying to even make the scripture say opposite what it actually is trying to say. Yeah. Okay? They're not satisfied with lining up the scripture. They want scripture to line up with them. That's Herodias. That's Haman. Okay? All right. So that's how this, you can see how this is brought together and applied for us here and now. Next example. This one I call the menorah of the two wives. But it actually involves two married couples. On one hand, we have Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And then we have Lot and his wife, who is nameless in the Bible. But again, there's a significance to this namelessness. And this pattern is centered on the visitation of the angels to both couples. Genesis chapter 18, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 5. <clears throat> Verse 1. And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, him being Abraham, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from my, thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After all that ye shall pass on, for therefore ye are come unto your servant. And they said, so do as thou hast said. The, next si the, the other side of it we find on Genesis chapter 19. We're going to read from verses 1 to 3. Verse 1. And there came two angels to Sodom at even. And Lot sat down at the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them. And he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn and I pray you into your servant's house. And tarry all night and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, 
but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned in unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did break unleavened bread, and they did eat. All right, so let's go through again the similarities and the opposites. We see Abraham, he's approached by God and two angels. Lot is only approached by the two angels. He doesn't see God. Okay? Abraham's response in verse 5, in Genesis 18, verse 5, he says, I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that ye shall pass on. For therefore are ye come unto your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. But he went on to make cakes, killed a calf and dressed it. There was milk and butter. He provided a feast. Remember, what, what did he promise them? I will fetch you a morsel of bread. That's all he promised. But he gave them cakes. He got killed the calf, gave them butter, milk. The whole, he provided a feast. Okay? Look at Lot's response. Genesis 19, verse 3. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned unto him, and entered into his house, and he made them a feast, and did break, bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. He promised them a feast, but he gave them a morsel of bread. Opposites. So Abraham offered a morsel of bread, but actually provided a feast. Lot provided a feast that was actually a morsel of bread. The message to Abraham and Sarah, you will have a son. There was a message to Lot and his wife, get out of Dodge. Don't look back. Sarah initially doubted, but came to believe and was blessed. Lot's wife initially believed, but then doubted and was cursed. Those are opposites. Sarah went through a body change. She became young again. We call that a positive body change. Lot's wife also went through a body change, but a very negative one. So they both went through a body change. Opposites, but similar. Abraham, uh, sorry, Sarah, sorry, previously went through a name change. She was called Sarai. God changed her name to Sarah. Lot's wife her name was erased from history. Think about that. Abraham and Sarah had an offspring through a legal, God-ordained marriage. Lot had two offsprings through incest. Now we bring these two stories together and let's apply them to our day. So Abraham and Sarah, we can see they're typing a bride going into a rapture. Lot and his wife, we see they're the church going through the tribulation. The same two angels were present with both Abraham and Sarah, as well as with Lot and his wife. Okay. And in our day, the message of, the, uh, you know, of Brother Branham, he did preach to both groups. That message did go to both groups. Okay. But for one group, it's a message that prepares a bride for a rapture. For the other group, it's a message of impending judgment. Okay. And... You know, Billy Graham and Oral Roberts were there for this. Okay, they were involved in this. So we see this happening again. As I, as I mentioned, Abraham saw God. Lot did not. We look at the ministry of Brother Branham, we see God. The denominations, do they see God in Brother Branham's ministry? Not a chance. No? Okay. <clears throat> in terms of the food... We see in the bride, her food is the message. 
And it does not always look appealing to the world. But for us, the message is a feast. But for the denominations, they're always promising a feast. But you're going to spiritually starve to death on what they have to serve. Okay? As the bride is going through her body change right now, we're in the midst of a rapture. We're going through a body change. We see in the world today the anti-type as well. The trans community is now the big thing. Men wanting to change their bodies into women. Women wanting to change their bodies into men. Body changes are manifesting on both sides of the fence. In spiritual terms, how many people have left the nomination to accept the message and then turn back like Lot's wife? Okay, to believe the sign. <laughs> yeah. Lot's wife's name was erased from history. And God does warn of having our names blotted out from under heaven if we turn away, if we go turning back. The offspring that the bride produces through the marriage is the life of Christ. The offspring the church is going to produce through spiritual adultery and fornication is going to be the Antichrist. Both forces are at work, both in the physical, both in the spiritual, displaying these same patterns of Sodom and Gomorrah replaying out in our day. You know, so the question for us is, you know, what do we do with these lessons? <laughs> you know, you know, what do we do with these types? Which, which side are we identifying with? I mean, I'm all, which side you guys are all identifying with? But this is the challenge of the Bible. This is why those things are there, you know? So now that I've kind of shown you how these kind of patterns are there, keep your eyes out for it when you're reading Scripture and when you're reading the message. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. They're going to start popping up. But they will be a good confirmation for you. It's like, yeah, I mean, this has got to be God because this just can't come from a human mind. Anyway, that's it for today's lesson. God bless you. Back to you, Brother Ben. <laughs> Uh, that's a helicopter preacher. <laughs> Just go straight up and straight down and uh, leave, leave me standing here. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, we know nothing as we ought to know. And uh, the Bible is, uh, you know, Brother Brandon made a statement in the Bible. He said, if you knew the numerology of the Bible... And then he would come out from that same, you wouldn't name your child such and such a name. You wouldn't do such and such. But he dealt with types and shadows. And so types and shadows make the picture clearer. So I, I sure appreciated the little types, you know, just starting in the Old Testament, working right to present day. And uh, I, I think we're a blessed people to see what we see in this last day. You know, Lot could see part of the picture. He could see two men. Abraham saw the whole picture. He saw the two men. He saw Sodom. But he also saw his part. Lot could not see the other way. So, you know, you, you, you won't, you know, Brother Doug, you could go preach this somewhere in, in a church and and, and they'll see their part, but they, they won't see the other side. And so we, we're blessed we can see both sides. Oh, my. Are you grateful for the Word of God? Do you have confidence in the Word of God? Let's stand together. I am blessed every day that I live. I am blessed. <coughs> I am 
Oh